0: Welcome to Inter-Revolutionary Radio with your host, Beth Green. This is James Maynard, your co-host. Today's topic, the potluck revolution, radical yet as American as apple pie. The potluck revolution is a call for us to go back to our American roots of cooperation and mutual support. For decades, we've been told that competition is the normal way to live. Not so. We also have a history and desire for cooperation.
1: Yeah. We've had our- Yeah,
0: (laughs) we've had had barn raising, where folks get together to help one another. And potlucks, where everyone contributes what they have, and we all get fed.
2: Ah, that doesn't count.
0: (laughs) (laughs) These models are cooperative and as American as apple pie. I'd like to be
2: apple pie.
0: Okay. <laughs> Bernie Sanders says that we need a political revolution where millions of people take back our power from special interests, and we agree. But we also need an economic, social, and spiritual revolution, all based on cooperation and caring. Stay tuned to the show to find out about the potluck revolution, how to build it, and what you can bring to the table. Call in live if you can, and contact Beth to invite her to come into your world to speak via video conference. The potluck is a model of how we can and want to be. Let's spread it. Bon appetit. And now, here's Beth.
2: Hi, everybody. Well, welcome, welcome, welcome to everyone. Uh, You know, it's so much easier to relate to people in the abstract than in the concrete, don't you think? (laughs) (laughs) I love proclamations like this. We should all cooperate. Anyway, uh, we're still trying. We're trying and we're going to be honest because we got to do this, guys. Something has got to change. But first I want to tell you uh, that, you know, we uh, broadcast from voiceamerica.com variety channel live at 3 to 4 p.m. Pacific time every Thursday. But we have two new affiliate stations. Now, I'm probably going to have to repeat myself several weeks in a row because I don't know exactly when those affiliates are going to pick up our show regularly or which show they're going to put on first. So I'm going to have to thank them this week. And then I'm going to have to thank them next week. And then maybe after I thank them the third week, that'll be enough. Because I just want to thank them. I want them to know that they are welcome. And the first one is KWRK in Fairbanks, Alaska. Fairbanks Open Radio. Isn't that cool? Yeah. And they are, uh, we don't really know that much about them, James and I and Christine, or mm-hmm. our other surprise guests. We have a surprise guest today. But, um, It's their, their address is something like University Avenue and College Street. So we think that (laughs) (laughs) that could be a clue that this is a College Station. Well, we are thrilled to have you. Just thrilled. And the second one is called, where is it written down? Oh, no. It's Goldendale is the place. Goldendale, Washington. And where is the, oh, there it is. KVGD, Goldendale Community Radio in Goldendale, Washington. I want to personally thank Corey Eberhardt at KVGD and Flynn Luddington at KWRK. So we are not that far from Washington. We're in, um, in Oregon. So mm-hmm. we are just so happy to have both of you with us today. And we hope that your audience uh, really loves what we're doing because we love to be loved. And uh, (laughs) 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 that's what's important here exactly forget about the revolution or anything like that
0: all all you need is love
2: all you need is love that's what I need anyway uh, so we hope to hear from some of our new listeners sometime in the next couple of weeks but theoretically we are starting uh, these stations right now and we are just so happy and we would love to have more Pacifica affiliates with us so that's my hello and now by the way, we're um, going to warn you that we have a surprise guest, except it's not a surprise to her. It's Chris Reese, and she's in the insurance industry, and she's going to be introducing ourselves later. But first, we have James and the Inner Revolution. The Inner Revolution, for those of, us, of you who are new, is about oneness, accountability, and mutual support. And, and it's this difficult. Is the news of the Inner Revolution. This is the news. All right, James, take it away.
0: Okay, There's a lot of news of the inner revolution, but today, in honor of our topic, we're going to share news of the potluck revolution. That is news of people bringing what they have to the table based on ability. So here's the first story from the New York Times, May the 25th of 2015. It's so exciting, we're giving you a lot of details. One man's millions turn a community in Florida around. Two decades ago, Harris Rosen, who grew up on the Lower East Side of Manhattan.
2: Yay, Lower East Side, where my father was born. Go ahead.
0: And became wealthy in the Florida hotel business. No, decided,
2: that didn't happen to me. That my
0: didn't happen to your, no, your father. No. no. Sad, sad but true. <laughs> yes. Decided to shepherd part of his fortune into a troubled community named Tangelo Park in Orlando. Leaders of this neighborhood of small, once charming houses. Uh, the leaders tried to beat back drugs, crime, and too many shuttered homes. Nearly half its students had dropped out of school. 21 years later, with the infusion of 11 million of Mr. Rosen's money so far, Tangelo Park is a striking success story. The Tangelo Park program has provided an all expenses paid education for Tangelo Park residents accepted into public higher education institutions in the state of Florida, from vocational schools to four year colleges. Since 1994, Mr. Rosen has distributed nearly 450 college scholarships. Nearly all of its seniors graduate from high school, some years 100% graduation rate. Also, Mr. Rosen provides young children the free daycare centers and a pre kindergarten program such that kids head for kindergarten primed for learning or already reading. <laughs> Property values have climbed as houses and lawns are welcoming rather than shuttered. Crime has plummeted. Last week, 20 of Tangello Park's 25 seniors graduated from high school with Rosen College college scholarships in hand. In all, Mr. Rosen now spends about $500,000 a year, less than when he began the program. Mr. Rosen said, there are a lot of wealthy people with the resources to to do the same thing if they choose. Next year, Mr. Rosen is starting his education program in Paramore, a neighborhood in downtown Orlando with housing projects and a more transient population. Success in Paramore, he said, might persuade other wealthy people to embrace the program. In a potluck society, shouldn't we aim for this, that those who have the most give the most for such beneficial purposes? Beth, your thoughts?
2: I just love this story. Love it, love it, love it. And it's been going on for 20 years. It's not like this guy said, oh, I'm going to do a publicity stunt and look like I'm a a real philanthropist. It's like he's been doing it. And it's amazing what he's been able to do. But how this is really a potluck thing is he's bringing the money and the ideas and really supporting the people But it's the kids and the families and the people in the community who are making this happen. So everybody is bringing what they have to the table. And it's very smart to try to see if this can work in a different kind of neighborhood because they can say, well, this worked there because there were a lot of homeowners there. Well, let's see what happens in Paramore. See, I believe, you know, we're going to have a show about really changing our world through a... Motive means and opportunity. You know, have you ever watched a TV detective and you said, oh, do they have the motive? Do they have the means? Do they have the opportunity? <laughs> well, see, I think that's what the real gene differences in race are. You know, do what group of people has the motive, the means, and the opportunity? And how do we support them when they don't have it? Because underneath it, I really believe we're all the same. We're all equal. It's not like some people are smarter than others or... Whatever. So uh, I'm very excited. We're going to have a lot more about that in the future. But this is a fabulous story. And and you can see what a difference this man is making. It's very touching. Thank you.
0: Yes. And in a related story of sharing the wealth for the common good, here's some news from the LA Times of February the 15th, 2016. A Rockefeller explains why I lost faith in ExxonMobil and donated my shares to fight global warming. <laughs> Neva Rockefeller Goodwin, whose great grandfather was John D. Rockefeller Sr., founder of the Standard Oil Company, donated the shares of Exxon Mobil that she held to the nonprofit Rockefeller Family Fund's environmental program, which sold them and is using the four hundred thousand dollar proceeds to fight global warming. Beth,
2: I love that. It's more of accountability, right? The inner revolution is about oneness, accountability, and mutual support, you know, like we're all one, and uh, we need to be accountable for what we've done, and we need to support the whole, and the whole will support us. Well, this is such a story of accountability, because this woman is saying, you know, we are making a mess of this planet, we're going to do something about it, and I just admire that and think it's just an awesome, because this is showing People, it's everywhere around the world. You know, everywhere you turn, there is people doing the most amazing things. So when I get discouraged about, oh, God, it just feels like nothing is ever going to happen. Or if I watch some of the Republican primary debates, I think that I'm going back to the dark ages. There are all kinds of people around the world who have consciousness. And that gives me hope. So I love that story. Okay, go ahead.
0: And now here are some news items about economic organizations that mark a shift toward employee-owned enterprises. Yes. The following two are what are called ESOPs, which stands for Employee Stock Ownership Plan. The, the first is from the site for economicjustice.org, November the 30th, 2015. Meet the employee-owned chain called Walmart's Biggest Nightmare. Yeah. Publix, Publix <laughs> became the nation's most profitable grocer by doing the opposite of what Walmart, Walmart does. Publix is the fastest growing chain, grocery chain in America. And it isn't a corporate giant the corporate, that exploits workers, but an employee-owned company that's more profitable than any of its competitors. Unlike Walmart's hourly workers who just got a raise to 9 and $10 an hour, Publix workers get a piece of the company after putting in a 1,000 hours and working for the company for over a year. Each employee owner takes home an additional 8.5% of their take-home pay every year in stock options. This year, Publix was ranked as one of Fortune's top 100 companies to work. Based on an anonymous employee survey, Publix is only one of 12 companies to be consistently listed by employees as a top place to work every year since the list's inception in 1998. According to Wikipedia, Publix employs over 180,000 people at its 1,114 locations, and it's the largest employee-owned grocery chain in the United States. It's also one of the 10 largest volume supermarket chains in the country, and it's the most profitable of all the biggest grocery (laughs) chains. Imagine I that. love it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, I just read something. Uh, this is going to tickle you. If it's true, I just read that Walmart shares are going down because they're, in, they're investing more in their employees. I mean, is this unbelievable? So, a Walmart is going to pay their employees a little bit more so that they don't all have to go on welfare, which means that we are subsidizing Walmart's uh, you know, profit margin and their shares are going down. What kind of crazy... Consciousness is that. So I I think this public story is fabulous, that they're growing, that they're winning. Hey, this has everything to do with the potluck revolution, which we'll be talking about a little bit more. But Yes. Yes.
0: Yeah, Walmart could learn from Publix because Publix is more profitable than Walmart. Yeah. Okay, here we go. Here's another one. Winco is another successful employee-owned grocer. According to their website, Winco.com, each employee owner becomes a participant in their ownership program after working at least 500 hours in the first six months of employment and accumulating 1,000 hours a year. According to Time Magazine in 2013, Winco provides health benefits to all staffers who work at least 24 hours per week. I spoke to an employee at the new Winco here in Grants Pass, Oregon, who said that they all have. Cadillac benefits for working there as employee owners. They get medical coverage, dental, and vision. The company also has an extremely generous pension plan with employees getting an amount equal to 20% of their annual salary that's paid for by WinCo. A company spokesperson told the Idaho Statesman that more than 400 non executive workers, cashiers, produce clerks, and such, currently have pensions worth over $1 million apiece. For example, inside a particular store of 130 employees of Winco, grocery clerks, shelf stockers, etc., their combined retirement savings roughly come to an astounding $100 million. And that figure is growing rapidly, such that in a few years, the average wealth of these employees could easily exceed a million dollars each. Quite a few individual workers already have account balances above that level. Beth?
2: Well, I've been begging James to go to WinCo to try to get a job. (laughs) I mean, mean, we're in our 70s. You know, we have Medicare, but we don't have uh, vision. We don't have dental. Are you kidding? I mean, and we haven't got a million dollars. Far from it. We'll be working for a 100 years until I'm going to fall off my desk, you know, to try to support us in our old age, which we're already in our old age. And we're so much like everybody, most everybody else in the country. So this whole issue of ownership is really exciting. And we're going to get into it a little bit, well, a lot in this show. But I think, James, you have one more piece of news? or Yes, I, yes, I yeah.
0: do. One more. Okay. Our final story is dated January the 15th and it's reported on anticap.wordpress.com. Creative economy, one year on. Worker-owned cooperatives... New York City had approved a budget for a one point two million dollar program, the New York City Worker Cooperative Business Development Initiative, to fund a community of nonprofit providers to facilitate the development cooperatives, to expand the promise of workplace democracy to hundreds of low income residents throughout the five boroughs of New York. The first annual report of the Worker Cooperative Business Development Initiative is now out, and the results are promising. During the first year of the initiative, the city and its partners have supported the creation of 21 new worker cooperatives. That alone nearly doubles the number of worker cooperatives in New York City. This is reportedly the largest investment to date in worker cooperatives by a city government in the U.S. There's a lot more information about this, but that's all we have time for today. Beth?
2: Well, here it is. It's happening all over. Chris is going to tell us about some... There's a book which uh, I'm starting to read, but uh, my eyes are falling out of my head. Marjorie <laughs> Kelly, see, that's what happens when you get old. But Marjorie <laughs> Kelly wrote a book <laughs> called Owning the Future, and it, she's talking about all these different kinds of ownership and relationship to the society, uh, or, you know, enterprises, whether it's land trusts or it's co-ops or it's the, the ESOPs or it's, just uh, companies that ha- actually have some kind of consciousness. It's amazing what's happening, not only here, but across the world. So here's where I want to start. See, we are taught, and we've been brainwashed into thinking that the only thing that works is capitalism in its raw form, right? I mean, isn't that what you were taught? Yeah. There's, in fact, you're never even supposed to question it. Well, we had Richard Wolf on. And, you know, we had a great conversation with him about why can't we question capitalism? You know, and so whether you want to call this socialism or cooperativism or this Marjorie calls it the generative economy or we call it the potluck economy, we are saying it's ridiculous to think that there's only one way to organize human society and the human economy. In which is, you know, there's a bunch of greedy people on top who, uh, <laughs> you know, extract all the income from the people and extract the resources from the earth. And that this is no good. And there are other things that could be there. But see, I came towards this with the idea of, oh, my God, can we ever convince people that we should try something else? And then I get to find out that, as usual, I'm 100 years behind and it's already happening. So this is the potluck revolution where we each bring what we have to the table and from each according to his ability and to each according to her need, just like a potluck. And we really support that idea and we want to see how it's already happening on the planet. So we have Christine Benton with us who is a kind of co-host with us, with James and me, and uh, she's been studying up on this and is very excited about the topic, so she's going to be conducting an interview of me. And we have our surprise guest. Chris, would you like to introduce yourself, and then I'm going to turn it over to Christine. Sure.
1: Beth, thanks so much for having me on. Um, my name is Chris Reese, but I feel like I should introduce myself and say, hi, my name's Chris, and I'm a recovering capitalist. And we do need a 12-step program for recovering capitalists. I'm here to tell you that because there's a lot of us out there and we all need to change. Um, You know, just watching your videos and and having the privilege of working with you, um, also in your workshops and such, you know, and then seeing Bernie Sanders, you know, take America by storm, you know, I've just, I've changed. Like the past four months, I've literally Changed you know heart and mind totally changed, so thank
3: you I'm Bernie. all
1: in for the potluck society. I'm excited to be here and contribute where I can
2: and um,
3: yeah,
2: bringing your part to, to the
3: potluck thanks, Chris. yeah,
2: yeah. and uh, what's your uh, what's your part of the capitalist system, Chris <laughs> <laughs> What do you do?
1: Side in the wool? I'm in the insurance industry, and I'm an underwriting. Uh, I'm an underwriting officer, and do a lot of marketing as well. And I'm in the the property casualty insurance business. So I'm not in life insurance. I'm not in health. I'm not in auto. I'm in what's called property casualty, and a little subset of the world called specialty.
2: Okay, and you are actually an executive. I am. Believe it or not. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so <laughs> there it is. That means there's more people like Chris in the world. You know, we don't have to know exactly how to change the world, we just need to unleash. People And I think the exciting thing about Bernie Sanders is uh, that he's not really questioning the capitalist system. He's just questioning the excesses of the capitalist system. But just starting out with that idea or that the government is actually supposed to represent us is revolutionary enough and has given permission to a lot of people to come out of the closet and stop hiding under their desks. So I'm going to turn over the show to Christine. Christine, take it away. Yes. So I can turn questions right back to you, because one of the okay. things and I... Christine, why don't you say where where you exist in the capitalist world? Oh, in the capitalist world. Um,
3: in addition to being a producer of interrevolutionary radio, which I don't consider very capitalist, <laughs> um, I consider it very interrevolutionary and I love that. But yes, I, I embody a position in capitalist society. I'm a public relations executive, and I work with a lot of large Corporations and I ghostwrite uh, for a lot of uh, Fortune 500 uh, executives and CEOs. So I'm right in there with you, Chris.
2: <laughs> <laughs> See? So don't have stereotypes of people. Exactly.
3: You, you think, know, you yeah. never
2: know. You never know. You
3: go in a corporate setting, you think, oh, they're all corporate people, and they could be like Chris and me who are, like, dying for something different, <laughs> right. but just haven't figured out yet how we're going to pay the mortgage, you know. So, Beth, <laughs> um, that, that one of the, the things that's been, like, in my mind since that Richard Wolf uh, episode that you had a few weeks ago show, which people yeah should listen to if they haven't heard it, because it was really eye opening. And one of the things he was talking about has how capitalism isn't really democratic. And we pride ourselves in America on being a democracy. And for some reason, we think that capitalism is also very American, which it seems more like a monarchy or or an oligarchy or something (laughs) Very uh, dictatorial, you know, in terms yeah. of, of the hierarchy and the organization. And I guess my question is, like, I was listening to that. I was like, wow, yeah, that's true. Why didn't I even notice that before? <laughs> like, why did we never challenge this entire system that is clearly not a democracy?
2: Well, I think... F- First of all, the thought that just popped into my mind since you just asked me that question, uh, no, I don't have a script. Nobody tells me what they're going to ask me in advance, which is good because I have no memory. So (laughs) so I'd never remember the script anyway. But one of the things that really comes to mind is that people associate democracy with capitalism because we were a burgeoning capitalist economy at the time when we came into being. And you see, when you think about it historically, like the medieval feudal economy was also associated with feudalism. Mm-hmm. So, And feudalism was a political system which was based on lords and, you know, fiefdoms and obligations and all of that. And the, uh, the capitalist class actually broke a lot of those traditions. Um, when they came into being because, see, they were not in the aristocracy. Mm-hmm. They didn't have titles. So right. anybody, you know, who makes money gets to be the elite in a capitalist society. So they, there, was that, uh, there was a kind of synergy there. But mm-hmm. the, uh, there are two things that I want to say about that. That isn't the only way to be democratic. And, in fact, it has become the opposite of democracy because, you know, his, through our history – Because another way of being democratic, of course, is the way our uh, founding, um, um, some of our founding colonies, they were much more cooperative. Many of our religious groups came over here. They were very egalitarian. They were democratic too. So it's not necessarily that way. And then we've been brainwashed into thinking that questioning capitalism means that we are for totalitarianism. And, of course, that's complete nonsense. It's not true, unless you think that everybody who's ever gone to a potluck is a secret totalitarianist. And you know. And then with the anti-communist scare, it's like, oh, communism. You know, so that the people on top could stay on top because they didn't want people to be thinking about, well, wait a minute, maybe this isn't fair. Mm-hmm. But see, in addition to all of that, in, the, um, in our world, the income inequality has actually gotten worse and worse and worse and worse. And it's, keep, it's continuing to go in that direction. So with the income inequality comes political inequality because you have things like Citizens United, very wealthy people who are buying off politicians or just have mm-hmm. undue influence. They lobby, they do this. You know, so come on, we all know, we're not stupid. We know that money does have a lot of influence on people. So between the brainwashing and the uh, fact that we are being dominated by people who are trying to keep us in our place, um, it's, you know, there has continued to be some kind of like, oh my God, think of anything but capitalism and you must be a communist. And a communist in their mind is like, you're bringing Joseph Stalin into eat your children mm-hmm. so it, it's completely ridiculous and there are many places around the world which, which never had that idea i mean there were socialists have been elected in many nations outside the u.s but the u.s you know we've ha- and we even had socialist candidates in the united states but that was all crushed by mm-hmm. uh, very very consciously the, you know at the end of world war ii so that is part of it But what is fascinating, I think, about what we're seeing today is that the cooperative spirit is there also. I think that's really the point that we're trying to make, is that we are just as much cooperative as we are competitive. But what is being fed in us is competition. So people like Chris and, and Christine And by the way, you don't have to have Christ in your name in order for you to believe, to think this way. Although many people like, you know, the Pope, half the time sounds more like me than he does like anybody else, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Because this is part of our spiritual belief system in oneness and in caring for one another. So, um, you know, people everywhere have been dominated by this consciousness and have been fed this consciousness, and the other part of us has not been supported. And, you know, then you have the media, and in, in fact, in our own country, we've had, we had people imprisoned for talking about socialism and anything that really goes against the status quo. But the status quo isn't working, and we know that because people are suffering, and we've had these terrible economic ups and downs and crashes in the financial market, I mean, this is untenable, even for the capitalists, which is why this guy, there's a recent appointment to the Federal Reserve. I can't remember where that was. Was it in, uh, James, do you remember? Yes,
0: uh, it's in uh, Minnesota.
2: In Minnesota, a guy in Federal Reserve said, you know, we ought to break up the banks. We need to break up the big banks. Mm-hmm. You know, even p- intelligent capitalists know that what we've got is untenable. And uh, we're not proposing that it has to be, you know, this way or that way. We're saying let's unleash our creativity to come up with other forms of economic uh, distribution and ownership that are more humane, that actually work that give workers enough money to buy the products and that are decent towards the environment. Sorry, James, what were you going to say?
0: I was going to say that uh, uh, this new member of the Federal Reserve worked for one of those big banks he's saying should be broken up. He worked for Goldman Sachs, one of the very Mm. biggest. And then he worked in the Treasury Department, and he helped out with the bailouts of the big uh, firms and, and the auto industry. And so he knows what he's talking about, and he says, we need to break these up. We need to shift out of this system that we've been working with.
2: Yeah, so we're kind of talking about common sense, and I understand that Chris has some very radical stuff to share with us about the insurance industry. Christine, does it feel right to ask Yeah,
3: I was just going to ask her that, but I was also going to invite people to call in if they'd like to, to ask questions. And right before I get to a little teeing up, Chris, I'm wondering, James, if you can just give people the phone number.
0: Sure. So, if any of our listeners would like to call in with a question or a comment, call us at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788.
3: Thank you. I love the way you say that. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. So, you know... Yeah, it was smooth. Um, so, Chris, you know, Beth has been talking about how there have been there has been a cooperative movement, and I know that you've seen this also in the industry. And I was hoping you can give us some background on where um, insurance cooperatives, you know, be, began and you know how they've they've come into being over time and how that's been working.
1: Sure, it's actually. You know, it's surprising because so much of, of what we think about the insurance industry is pretty much greed and corruption. But <laughs> but there really are some, some really amazing bright spots in the industry. Um, funny enough, back in the early, 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 early nineteen hundreds there was some cooperatives that started and freed slaves first started a cooperative to pull their money together. They needed really? to keep- yeah, 1903. They needed to pay for things like funeral costs and life insurance, and um, these early organizations were called mutual assistance societies, and they became like an early precursor to insurance in the United States. And then immigrants coming from different different are, are uh, you parts saying of there, the
2: world. I'm sorry, Chris. Are you saying there were there was no insurance in the United States before these slaves started their co-ops?
1: There was insurance, but it wasn't readily available to certain people.
2: Okay, got it. All right. Thank you for clarifying.
1: So, and that's a great point. I'm glad you brought that up because during the same time period, the late 19th and early 20th centuries, immigrants from various other countries came and also had to pool their resources together to give each other some, you know, collective financial support related to illness or unemployment. So there was an Italian-American Mutual Aid Society formed as well as a Mexican-American Society formed. So, you know, of course, all of those, those people and their subsequent um, families have been assimilated into, you know, into the American Society, but their early needs when they couldn't get commercial insurance were met by them banding together. Um, And, Beth, you might find this interesting, being from New York, there was a group of farmers, um, Jewish farmers in New York in 1913, that were running into difficult financial times, and they had to take in borders to make ends meet. Yeah, that's my family. (laughs) I know, right? So so it's Pollock Society, right? Yeah. So something about them bringing in the borders jacked up their insurance rates, so, they left the commercial insurance market, and they created their own insurance company. And that insurance company is actually still in business today. Isn't that wow. amazing? Yes. Yeah. started in 1913, and it's still in business. So, I think, you know, what we're seeing is, um, you know, sadly, um, we're seeing the commercial insurance market pushing out people on the margins and on the fringe, but we're seeing people being very resourceful and pulling together and pooling their money to create their own insurance vehicle. So this there was a huge, um, quote-unquote, medical malpractice crisis in the 1970s, and many states created their own medical malpractice carriers, and they were owned by the physicians. So we call these mutuals because they're owned by the policyholders. It's a little bit different than what we're talking about in terms of a cooperative because yeah. the employees don't necessarily have any vote or ownership in the company. Yeah. However, what is really cool about these companies and and many of the customers that I work with are like this, so I get a chance to work with them firsthand, is that they're really committed to taking care of their customers. Like, they teach them risk management techniques to help prevent insurance claims from ever happening. One of the companies in Arizona gave back 25% of their written premium last year to their policyholders in the form of a dividend. Mm. And, um, you know, that's amazing. Like, when you, when you think about, like, the big health insurance companies, Cigna, UnitedHealthcare, et cetera, you know, we never hear about them giving any money back, right, to people, <laughs> to people with health problems. Mm-mm.
2: Not hard. So they're discovering that they're pre- – they're, see, a lot of companies make money by declining claims. But yep. you're saying that these companies are making money by helping people not have medical malpractice to start with.
1: Yes, so, so they, they do two things. One is they do a lot of training with the physicians and their staff to help prevent medical malpractice claims, and a lot of it centers around how you relate to the patient. Mm-hmm. So it's not only helping the physician stay out of court, it's really helping the physician-patient relationship, and over the past few years, communication has been a big part of their training programs. They also um, They also work really closely to defend the doctors, so some insurance policies, like you submit your claim and the carrier is like, well, you know, if I squint hard enough, I might find a way to pay it. But if I can squint the other way and I can find a way to deny it, that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. Not these companies. These companies step up immediately and they help their physicians. In fact, before the physicians even get sued, they'll have an attorney come out and go to a deposition with them and help, you know, help them sort things out. And it really, you know, in the whole scheme of the financial system, you know, and finance, the financial industry. um, It is really cool to see how they help their policyholders and how they care about them and that the dividends are going back to them because there aren't any stockholders. Right. You know, there's, there's no stockholders to satisfy. So, so they, they give the money back.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think I, yeah, there's no absentee landlord. (laughs) Right. And I, I think so, you know, one thing- Chris, we, we have some callers, so I know yeah. Christine is hot together. Okay. Yeah, them. I was just going to say, and I, I get
3: the the essence of what you're saying, Chris, even though you said, like, dividends and premium and <laughs> depositions right. in the same sentence. Yeah. But yeah, like, they're really caring about people, and it's a more, um, it's, it is a more co-op, cooperative spirit and, of sharing. And um, James must have said, like, the phone number really magically, because we have three callers already. So... I'd like to uh, welcome, first, Todd in San Diego.
0: Hi, everyone. I Hi. love this show. I love what you're talking about, and I, <laughs> I, I don't want to use up the time. I think there's so much information to share about this, but the the main thing that I was thinking about is how do we spread this idea of a potluck revolution without people seeing it as socialism? I mean, I I really think I want to help spread this, but my... You know, the challenge or the thing I'm, unless I have a one-on-one conversation, which is difficult to have with everyone in the whole country. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in a one-on-one conversation, of course, I can, I can share the whole extent of what the potluck revolution is really about. But to share this and help to create a, a movement of, you know, like a viral movement, I, I, that would be my question. Is, and I don't know that it has an answer at this moment, but if anyone has any thoughts, uh, I'd love to hear them.
2: Well, may I comment on that? Yeah, um, right. I would like to say, first of all, um, that by calling it the potluck revolution, we're not calling it the socialist revolution. We could call it the burp revolution, you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, because we just want to get away from that, uh, that you know, knee-jerk reaction. Secondly, yeah. Bernie Sanders is using the word socialism. And uh, he's got a particular form that he's thinking about, which is that the government, which, which represents us, is supposed to be helping us versus this ownership revolution that we're talking about, which is in addition to that, right? It's like, hey, we have to start owning the means of production, as Marx would put it. But yeah. the, fi- the final thing is, I think we just have to confront it head on. I mean, I did that today, and we're going to have to keep doing that over and over. So, if, so you think it's socialist, or you think it's this. So what? What's undemocratic about it? What's not American about it? So that's just my thought, is like just confront it head on and say, guys, we have, we have been sold a bill of goods. This is American as apple pie. And uh, just confront it. That's my two cents.
0: Yeah, Thank and you. Co- and, and cooperatives can I, can are very democratic. One one vote. Go ahead.
2: Well, there actually, there is a,
1: a huge worker cooperative movement in the United States, and there's a website. It's the U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives. And if you go on that website, you're going to find cooperatives that are owned by employees, one worker, one vote, Um and they cross industries, and they're across the country. So if you want more information on some, you know, the, the growing movement, go there. Again, it's U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives.
2: Go on that website. Beautiful, Thanks, Chris. Chris. That's, that's
3: awesome. Thank you.
2: And, and you know, that's, that's so important. What we're trying to do today in this show is to start showing that this is already happening. Mm-hmm. That is a great resource. You can invite Beth Green into mm-hmm. your community to speak. I can travel anywhere where there's an internet connection, and I'm happy to talk about the potluck revolution, and we're, you know, as we said, worker cooperatives is only one form that this ownership revolution is taking, uh, but it's a very important one.
3: Yes, thank you. It's a good point. Um, We have a couple other callers. We have Lizzie, also from
1: San Diego. Hi, everybody. Hi. Hi. Hi, uh, Beth, I want to ask you a question. I actually had an experience very recently of talking with someone about um, the potluck revolution and um, was met with a lot of very strong resistance. Um, <laughs> well, more like what I was talking about is, you know, how it's, really, you know, it was socialism, basically. I, I use that word, and it's like immediately this person became very passionate about her beliefs and... Uh, you know, just a lot of fear came up, and I tried to explain to her how a potluck is a socialism and barn raising, and I had trouble keeping her on the subject matter,
2: and it was just like pulling teeth.
1: Well, Do you my have
2: su- yes, yeah, my suggestion is you don't start out with calling it socialism. See, I'm saying mm-hmm. start out with the potluck. And say, or the barn raising, or these mutual cooperatives, or are you aware that there's a growing movement? And then you can talk about how people are afraid of it because they've been told that this is socialism. But socialism is a word like anything else, you know, it could mean so many different things to people. So I would start out with the potluck revolution. And then if, you know, and talk about it, and then you'll feel when it's the right time to mention, because I'm not going out saying we need a socialist revolution. I'm saying we need a potluck revolution. People who think socialism are thinking about the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. That's not socialism. It never was socialism, actually. Many of us have called that state capitalism, Mm -hmm. that instead of private individuals owning the capital, the government owns the capital. We are not talking about that. We're mm-hmm. not talking about the government taking over everything. Now, it is true that in many nations, that was a very important development. You know, okay, the United Fruit Company has all of this, these assets in Central America. or And people, the government came in and nationalized it, took it back from the United States or from the United Fruit Company. So there is a history there. Of some of the uh people using the government as a means of taking back their resources, especially from colonial nations or imperialist nations, or you know companies like honestly like us, you know, and that has been fought tooth the nail. British petroleum was freaking out when there was a socialist candidate who was elected in Iran. And the British Petroleum got together with the CIA and they overthrew a democratically elected government and threw in the Shah of Iran. And then, you know, the result of that is that everybody then threw out the Shah of Iran. And now we have, uh, you know, a theocracy in Iran. We have an an enemy instead of a friend. So we have been brainwashed. We have been led to believe that if it's good for General Motors, it's good for us. And that's kind of brainwashing. But I think you have to start with this is the potluck revolution. And when the subject of socialism does come up, you can say this is just your association with that word. We're not even using that word, but that it can mean so many things. We're talking about people having a stake, an ownership stake in their own lives. The fe- democracy is people having an ownership stake in our government And the potluck revolution, part of it is through people having an ownership stake in their workplace and in the wealth of the world. And that's hugely important. Mm -hmm. You know, you always know that a neighborhood where you have home ownership is going to be in a lot better shape than a neighborhood where everybody is a tenant. Why? Because everybody has a stake. This is American. Yeah. So I hope that helped.
1: Yes, thank you. No, and her, she had a point of, um, you know, that a lot of people are going to take more than their fair share. And, you know, that's not going to be able to be stopped.
2: Well, that's where consciousness comes in. But, you know, when you have a one-on-one relationship with somebody, you don't do that. The whole, that's a very good point. I'm glad you brought it up. The reason that we talk about the potluck is, is that really what happens? No. It's not what happens.
3: One person does not go in and eat uh, 80% of the food there, which (laughs) is kind of how our world is, you know, the 1%, right? Or one person having eating 50% of the food or whatever. That's kind of how our world is structured, though, in terms of wealth distribution.
2: Thank you, Christine. Couldn't agree with you more. That's exactly right. That's capitalism. You can tell her that.
1: Thank yeah, you. yeah, that's a great <laughs> point. That is capitalism. I mean, like when you look at Walmart, two of the 10 of the U.S. billionaires are own Walmart stock.
2: They're in the Walmart family. And those four, employees four. don't even so make a living wage. Right. Four out of the top 62 is Walmart, but two out of the top 10. Okay. Yeah, and, and the employees
1: don't make a living wage. So where is capitalism
2: at the potluck.
3: Right? At the potluck. What does that potluck look like? It's right. really sad. Nobody's right. having fun at that potluck. Right. Yeah. All right. Let's um. Let's welcome in. Uh, we just have a few minutes, so let's welcome Tracy from Phoenix, Arizona.
1: Hi, guys. Hi. Hi. So I was um. Really, what I was taking away from what you were talking about initially is that we have to shift from a focus on competition to cooperation, and I was thinking, you know, I can see how competition plays itself out in the workplace and a lot of business, but also in the home, you know, and I was recognizing how, like, how easily I go into competition with my husband rather than thinking about how we can work together towards something, Yeah. and so my, yeah, my question is, how do we shift from that sort of default, you know, mechanism into competition? I mean, I, like, I believe in what you're saying, and yet I see myself competing anyway, you know? And so how do we create that shift in ourselves
2: that we can take into our our families and into the workplace? Well, I think what we need to start doing is noticing when we don't do it oh. and f- and how that feels. When we don't cooperate? No, when we don't compete. Sorry. Oh, you, got Christine. it. Okay. Yeah. You know, noticing what it actually feels like when we we have a program called Unleashing the Power of Kids. And it's based on fitness, cooperation, service, and thought. And you give kids an opportunity to play games in a cooperative way, and they love it. And I know, Christine, you're involved in it, and so is Chris. They love it, but how often are they given that opportunity? When kids are given an opportunity to help each other in school, they do. Because what happens is that instead of us being focused on getting our validation from doing better than others, we start getting our validation from helping others. Like, oh, gee, that was so great that you helped so-and-so and now they're doing better. And you get validation. See, we all have egos. And that's a long conversation. Maybe we'll talk about that another time, about how our egos play into this. But we all have egos and we all want to be validated. But what are we getting validated for? So what we're doing is we're feeding that part of us that's competitive. Tracy, you have been... You you have been socialized to be competitive, and um, Mm -hmm. we don't. And you know the other thing is that our world is not set up for cooperation. Even some co-ops or employee-owned organizations have been stuck because. The rest of the economy is going down. The financial markets are going down. They're facing issues uh, you know, with slave labor in other countries. You, know. you cannot have a potluck revolution in one house. You have to have it all over. But we can all participate in co-creating it. So just like we have to uh, change, uh, address climate change together. If each one of us Starts to address climate change by the way that we're using fuel, by the way that we're eating, by insisting that we don't put our money into fossil fuel. If we have any savings, uh, there are companies now that are financial, uh, you know, advisors that are giving only using portfolios of uh, of responsible, uh, empl- you know, companies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As each one of us makes a choice we start co-creating a world that supports it. So if you're in a, in a discussion with someone who's screaming at you or doesn't want to listen to you, you're not going to have a cooperative conversation. But as each one of us keeps trying and making our little dent and creating our own little potluck universe wherever we are, we start to co-create something bigger that will support all of us. So it's not going to be easy. Hmm. Was that helpful? Yeah, yeah it's helpful. Actually, it, it doesn't sound easy, but it sounds encouraging. <laughs> Good. <laughs> you know, it's like what do so we thank want? You. And uh, what are we capable of? And what how do we feel? How does it fe- how do we feel when we're more cooperative? Well, how does our stomach feel? How is our stress level? <laughs> you know, these companies, these co-ops, they have they give much more security. Even when there is a Mondragon is this big co-op in Spain, and they've uh, you know been working in many other countries too, and uh, even when they had a bankruptcy, they, from what I've read, they they went for years trying to keep this this organization afloat, and then mm-hmm. when they couldn't, they did everything they could to get jobs for the people who were put out of work. I mean, my God, mm-hmm. look at the. The, 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 uh, the uh, towns and cities in the United States where industry has left and what is yeah. left, you know, Flint, Michigan, Detroit, uh, you know, they, they come to mind. So many places, uh, the in West Virginia coal mining t- co- communities, places where workers have been displaced one way or the other because there is no potluck mentality in our government. is like the big guys get to leave, go exploit somebody else more than they could exploit you, and they leave behind uh, decimated communities with no regard instead of actually working towards helping those communities to develop a new economic basis for their well-being. That's a result of absentee ownership, which is what I'm, you know, calling that capitalist model, where some shareholder owns this corporation, they only care about their own, pro- and the sad thing is sometimes we're the shareholders, right, but we're not the big shareholders, you know, and it's all about making money, and it's really not about the people, it's, it's like, uh, that's what happens. Yeah, yep. I think uh, that Mondragon Cooperative
3: is a good example of um, something, uh, an organization that was impacted, like you said earlier, Beth, by the world, right? Even though they have this amazing set of cooperatives, I think, you know, one of theirs uh, had to declare bankruptcy because there was low-cost competition from Asia because that they're focused on competition, at least in this instance, versus mm-hmm. cooperation. Yeah. Um, we just have a couple minutes. Maybe you can say something closing before James tells us about next week. But I do find it interesting that, you know, one of your co-hosts and your guests today are people that have like risen the ranks in the capitalist world, right? Yeah. And that we're here talking about um, the potluck revolution. So you would think that we would not stand to benefit from the potluck revolution. Um, We're not poor, and yet we're here. And so there must be something afoot and something changing. And maybe you can just talk about that for a minute before uh, James tells us about next week.
2: I love what you're saying. Christine, and I so appreciate what both you and Chris have brought to the table today. Uh, I'm asking everyone to open their minds and their hearts. We have a window of opportunity that hasn't been here for a long time. As an older person, I... Was in the movement, in the New Left movement, in the workers' organizing movement, as well as the anti Vietnam War and the ban the bomb and the women's movement and the anti racist movement and all of that. And I remember distinctly giving up because it felt like there would never be, a, that the working class of America would never rise up and do anything different. And, you know, I was always for. Something where it was more like ownership. It wasn't, I was never for the totalitarian model. <laughs> you know, that's not where I was coming from. And things have changed. Uh, the capitalist system is is betraying too many people. American workers were bought out to a great extent in the 50s, the 60s. Trust me, it wasn't like now. People are angry and they're frustrated and they can either go into a kind of a fascistic mode or they can go into let's get together and make this er- better for everybody rather than just let's get together and make it better for white people or for me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we have, we are at this amazing moment in history. I have not seen this. You know, this it, it probably wasn't like this since the 30s. And uh, there is a window of opportunity for us to change. And there is enormous creativity in people everywhere in the world, everywhere. and uh, con- And certainly in our own nation in the United States, that if people unleash their creativity to make this a better world for everybody, we can do something amazing. Let's not waste this moment and please do invite me to your community if you have a group i would be so happy to come in and share more and we are going to have a lot more information coming up on new other shows about how this is taking place fantastic well said james
0: yes next week yes challenging every stereotype how african-american domestic workers organize for their rights and ours A conversation with pramila nattison African American women are often seen as oppressed, but they are much more. Their fight has been central to the fight of all women and the fight of us all. Meet Pramila Madison, author of Welfare Warriors and Domestic Workers Unite. Pramila is helping us rethink the role of black women in our history, but she also helps us see that black women cracked open the issue of the value of housework, which impacts every one of us. We have to deal with housework, all of us. Either we provide unpaid labor in the home, we expect someone else to do it, or we have to pay someone else so that we can go out and make money ourselves. What is the value of housework? How does it relate to the labor movement? Who's going to take care of the house, the kids, and us? How can we work inside and outside the home at the same time? How does welfare relate to housework? And how have black kids been hurt through the racialization of welfare? Women, housework, race, and class, this topic will blow your mind. Join us. And now for a final word.
2: I can't wait for that show. (laughs) I I can't wait for it. I'm so excited about all those topics. And I was the West Coast coordinator of the Wages for for Housework campaign for four years. (laughs) From 1974 to 78. So I can't wait to get into this. And this is all more about how amazingly creative people are when they're given a chance. So I want to thank you guys so much for this wonderful show. And thank our new listeners in Washington and Alaska and thank every listener we have and we hope to have a wonderful future together. I'm not giving up and I can see that you aren't either. Right on. Yay. Thanks. Thanks, Chris, for joining us. Thanks, everybody.
0: Thanks, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and James Maynard. The next episode will broadcast live next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And don't forget Revolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv. Think outside the box and join us.